Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to our newest episode of BespokeCast. We are really excited this week to have the Managing Director and Director of Research for the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, Srinivas Tiruvarantai, joining us. He is a really interesting guy to follow on Twitter for not just insights into markets, but also insights into economics and how different perspectives within the economics discipline fit together, clash, and sometimes generate some some very different ideas about, about what's going on in the world of economics. So we're really excited to have him on this week and have a sort of a more economics-oriented conversation with a little bit of market insight as well. So Srinivas, welcome to the podcast, and we're super excited to have you. Thank you, George, for having me. Before we dive into talking about some of the uh, economic stuff and talking about markets, it's always really good to get some background on where folks are coming from. Um, so you grew up in India, is that correct? That's right. I grew up in India, but I did my undergraduate and my MBA in India and worked for three years in a bank before coming to the U.S. for graduate studies. And where in India did you grow up? So I am actually a native of the South, Tamil Nadu, which is uh, in in the South, but I grew up in Calcutta, uh, which is in the East. Now they've changed the name to Kolkata, but the old British name was Calcutta. You were educated undergrad and... um... Uh, graduate and I did my MBA. MB, MBA there and then you came to the United States and you ended up um, at uh, Washington and at Washington University in St. Louis. and you did a PhD in economics there yes I did a PhD in economics at Washington Washington University St. Louis did you do a dissertation for your PhD what was your area of focus so my area of focus was extremely theoretical um, it's actually a behavioral econ but uh, the idea of you know people have what is called uh, hyperbolic discounting, right? So they have preferences that are inconsistent. So uh, to give a simple idea, like um, we want to do, uh, we have a term paper due on Friday, right? Um, ideally, we would work over the next three days, so a little bit on Tuesday, a little bit on Wednesday, a little bit on Thursday, right? But our nature of procrastination is today, I'll decide, okay, you know what, I'm not going to do anything today, I'll work tomorrow and day after. Um, and then when I come to tomorrow, obviously I'm not going to stick to that plan because tomorrow the person, tomorrow is going to be the same person that I was today. He's going to try to procrastinate it to the next day, right? So uh, typically economics assumes that plans are what is called consistent, um, that people don't make these kind of inconsistent changes. But in reality, it's been shown, experiments have shown that people are inconsistent and and how do you model that? And so there's a mathematical model for dealing with hyperbolic discounting. And so what I tried to show was that kind of um, uh, modeling through that modeling is that you get a lot of weird things in uh, consumer behavior, which conventional economic theory says shouldn't happen, but in reality happens, you know? So people have these mental accounts and all that stuff, right? Why do you keep these mental accounts? You shouldn't. I mean, you should be able to see everything in a holistic picture, but that's not how we do things. Right. Uh, Human beings don't fit neatly into into equations, and when they do fit into equations, those equations don't look like something that a rational actor would follow, basically. That's right, right. When you were growing up um, in India, you took a strong interest in bridge. Uh, Is that correct? You were actually very highly ranked at one point. Yes, yes, and no longer. Unfortunately, I, I, I can, now I'm a dilettante. <laughs> but yes, I was. I did um, win the under uh, under 21, and I did represent India in the uh, Junior Bridge uh, Championship in 1989 in uh, in UK. So that's really interesting because bridge is a fascinatingly complex game. I think. I mean, I don't know a lot about bridge, but my my grandparents play it, so I, I sort of have a general idea of what the card game and plot entails. Uh, but it, it it's not something that I hear a lot of people get really into. I mean, chess or um, something like that. You know, 
there will be a lot of people that are interested in finance that that will play chess. Um, poker is probably even a better example. But I don't think I know that many people related to finance and economics that are interested in bridge. And yet, from what I know about the game, it seems like it might be a pretty interesting model for the world um, of uh, economic actors and financial markets. Oh, you are absolutely right. Of course, I am very biased because I play bridge. But um, you know, I think today it has become an old ladies' game for whatever reasons. You know, it is just not. Uh, it's it's dying among the young people. But it's actually for financial market participant. It's actually quite more relevant than than chess because in chess all the pieces are in front of you and all the information in front of you. There is no game theory. There is no uncertainty. There is no decision making, probabilistic decision making. In bridge. You know, you have all these aspects. Um, you have to make decisions under incomplete information and uncertainty. Uh, there is obviously gaming on part of the other participants. And uh, more important, it also has some of the things that all of us as investors go through and make mistakes, you know. Um, for instance, the decision-making, the probabilistic decision-making doesn't mean you're going to be right every time, right? There's going to be failures. That that's the meaning of probability. But if you stick to the plan over the long run, it's going to work out. But that's not how we think, see things. As human beings, we are fallible, and we tend to see each failure as a unique thing, not as a pattern in a long chain of uh, probabilistic events, right? And the other thing is regret, right? If, you, if something goes wrong, uh, you tend to regret it. And, um, or even, even though you, you stuck to the plan and it was all fine, uh, the thing is, if it didn't, you, you tend to look at everything as, as, an, as a single event, and have regret, which is which are things that as individual investors are very poisonous um, for your portfolio returns. And so I, I feel that bridge is tremendously um, useful for for investors and for behavioral psychology as well in that sense. If someone wanted to get into bridge, like if I wanted to start playing bridge or or learn how to play in any kind of detail, again, you know, I barely know anything about the game. Where would I go? What would be a good way to start doing that? Actually, now there are lots of tools, and it's very easy to learn. There is a free online uh, uh, site called uh, BBO, Bridge Base Online. Uh, they have teaching tools, but they have also now, uh, not now, They the first they started as an online place where people could play. So there are like tens and thousands of people at any given point in time playing. So you can play with people from Turkey, from Vietnam, Bangladesh, wherever. You know, it doesn't matter. That's the beauty of the Internet. And they also have a lot of teaching tools. So BBO, if you're interested in, in learning more about Bridge. Yeah, BBO. Bridge. Uh, the other interesting um, hobby or pastime that you spend some time thinking about is cricket, which will be very familiar to a lot of our listeners from outside of North America. But within North America is very infrequently discussed or really even known. Um, although it is interesting. I, <laughs> I was driving to um, pick up lunch the other day and noticed a couple of wickets up at uh, a school in the area here in near my home in North Carolina here. So, it, you know, it is played sometimes in North America, but a lot of people in North America don't really know much about cricket. Uh, do you think there are implications for um, financial markets and economics in uh, understanding the game of cricket? Yeah, especially the old form of cricket, which is actually played over five days. Most people can't believe that a game can be played over five days and not still have a result. Uh, <laughs> but that's the beauty of cricket, right? It, if you're going to play a game over five days, you have to think about the long haul. And you cannot, um, and that is really long haul. I mean, when your baseball game is three hours, you think about it. And so people, uh, and most of the time, nothing really is happening, which is how you really should be viewing. I mean, if you think about somebody like Warren Buffett, he's really thinking about long haul. And most of the time, he's not doing anything. Or as the famous uh, investor Jesse Livermore said, you know, most of the, my money is made by sitting. Uh, right? I mean, so... In, in that sense, cricket, too, teaches you the patience. Unfortunately, the long form of the game is uh, dying out for purists like me. I mean, I'm not so much of a purist, but I grew up when the long form of the game was the uh, was the only thing in town. Um, it, it does teach you kind of a uh, lot of good life skills, uh, although it's probably not relevant for the modern world now. 
So why is it that that a long form game of cricket takes so long to play? Is that entirely by design, like back to the origins of the game? Or is it something that evolved and moved that way over time as people refined the rules of the game and how it was played? I think it has been there for a long time. I do not know what the entire the origins of the game were. I mean, it obviously originated in England and, you know, how it uh, evolved from that in the five day game. But the five day game has been there for more than 100 years. I mean, 125, 130 years. So it's been there for a long time and that's the original form of international competition is the five-day game in fact originally there used to be no limit it was not even a five-day game there used to be no limit until you got a result or something like that or suddenly they decided to call it off and then there was a game that was played over nine days or ten days and they were, everybody got bored and they had to take a ship or something like that and they decided to okay call call an end to it and from that time onward they decided to have a five-day game is it like baseball in the sense that there is a there is a goal you you need to get to so in, in baseball it's um nine innings of three outs aside per inning uh very familiar to americans or canadians right. or you know people in north america uh for for cricket is it similar in that sense that there's a there's a goal that is determinate in terms of an outcome but indeterminate in terms of time to get there right so the idea is in the the, the typical conventional game, you know, unlike in baseball, uh, you each side gets two innings. Uh, in baseball, you have nine innings. Each side gets two innings. There are 11 players. Your objective as the the pitching, the equivalent of pitching in baseball in cricket is um, is called hitting. Uh, it's not, not called hitting, bowling. Okay. Um, and the equivalent of um, uh, batting is batting. That's the same thing. Um, the only difference is in baseball, the pitcher doesn't get to bend his arm. You, you don't throw. You, it is, it, you have to bowl it. So your action has to be round arm. Um, so that's one, one difference. The other thing is, in, a, in an inning, it's not like in baseball that the pitch, there's one pitcher who pitches for six innings. You know, It's not like that. I mean, here the, the pitching, uh, pitchers keep changing every six balls, and every six balls is called an over. Um, but the objective is to get the person out. Um, and unlike in baseball where there is a strike zone, in cricket, there is a clear objective way to get a person out. There are three three sticks standing out. That's called the stumps. You either try to hit the stumps or, just like in baseball, get the person caught out um, or, you know, running out uh, 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 run out when, when they don't reach the base. Um, there is also a third way of getting out, which is if the person sticks his leg in front of the of the wicket, um, so that the ball is going towards hurtling towards the wicket, but the person's leg is coming in the way, uh, then that's also an out. So th these are the various ways of getting out. The objective is to get all the other the the, the ten batters out. Although there are eleven, there's always got to be a pair in 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 play. So if the tenth tenth batter gets out, the eleventh guy doesn't have his pair, so that innings is, innings gets over. So you get the innings over, and um, and the objective is who scores the most runs. But unlike in baseball, where runs are very hard to get by, in cricket, runs are typically in, in the several hundreds. Um, so they add up the two innings. At the end of it, who has scored more runs wins. That's the... In, in other words, it, it the mechanics of the game are such that, um, similar to baseball, there's a lot of iterations. There's just way more iterations. It's it's like it's like baseball. Right. Baseball is similar is among American sports. Uh, one of the most um, iterative, like, you know, you're playing many yes. more games, there are many more pitches, there are many more discrete swings from a batter than, for instance, football, where in at the professional level, there's, what, 16 games and a much more limited uh, number of reps. So um, it's like baseball then in, in your description, just much more iterative because of the, of the mechanics of how the game is played. And that creates a requirement to be much more patient. It almost sounds a lot like bridge, actually, in the in the sense that small changes can have a big impact over over a long period of time. That's an excellent way to put it. I never really thought about it when you say this iterative. It is exactly that. I mean, you're just doing the same thing over and over and over and again. Um, and in that sense, the people are making very subtle changes, right? And and into the psychology. And just when somebody gets into a uh, into a pattern. You just change it a little bit and try to get that uh, surprise that person. But it, that's why it is such a patient game. But your point is right. It is just an iteration over many, many, many times. And that's exactly what it is, um, which is kind of boring to the viewer sometimes. But if you grew up, grew up on it, it's easier to be, easier to be engaged. 
turning back to your education, um, I'd, I'd be interested to hear from you what your thoughts are on the, the difference between the educational system at the higher level, so undergraduate MBA in India versus here in the United States where you did your PhD. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you know, the, the very best colleges in India uh, are fairly okay, not the quality of the education per se, but because they are very selective in taking the students. So it's very hard to get into the very best colleges. Um, so your peer group is very, very good. Um, and uh, and because of that, the quality of education seemingly is good, but it's not the quality of education. There's no comparison between even a top 100 college, let alone the top 20, 25 colleges in the US, uh, and even the very best places in India in terms of the actual quality of, of professors and the labs and facilities and all that stuff. There's just no comparison. They are not even in the same book. When you use the term quality, so you're not just talking about, you know, what is taught, but um, more the resources that are available to students. Is that sort of how you're? Yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, uh, the, the, the top engineering colleges, the resources are fairly good. Um, and there are a few research institutes like IISE and TIFR. Those are very, very good. And Indian Statistical Institute is one of the top in the world. They are, there are a few places like that. But outside of that, standard of education, you know, starts to deteriorate quite, quite rapidly. Did you have any uh, challenges? I mean, obviously, um, language and cultural uh, differences between India and the United States are going to be quite severe. Um, but in terms of the difference between schools, what was expected of you by professors, um, you know, again, undergraduate slash MBA isn't the same thing as PhD. So maybe not exactly like for like, but did you notice any, any, you know, significant differences at that level? No, not really. You know, I actually found it to be um, quite easy to get. I mean, initially I had a little bit of a challenge with the Midwest accent and they had a problem with my accent because I used to speak uh, really fast. I have tried to slow it down, but I still do. When I get excited, I do speak fast. Um, and obviously, the Indian accent is a little bit hard for the uh, for the American year, and especially the Midwestern uh, year, who are not that used to as many foreigners as uh, people living in the Northeast. You know, the people in the Northeast are used to all kinds of accents. So, you know, New York is a different ballgame. People don't have a problem uh, understanding my accent. Other than that, I didn't really have a problem. I actually like the education system. It is open. One of the things that I really like is that a professor have found um, would find it not at all problem to no problem in accepting that he didn't know the answer. He will look into it and um, and admit his ignorance. In India, that would not happen because the professor would feel like you know that would be humiliation and it's such a shame that he is accepting to a student that he is not. You know, you have those kind of weird power dynamics. You know, that's, that happens in any traditional society because you know respect, hierarchy, these things are were at least certainly very important when I was growing up in India, you know. So anybody higher up, you know, you don't, you didn't want to show them up. I mean, whether it's your elder or something like that, I mean, this is always a problem in playing bridge as well because I started playing young and I used to be playing with people who were 20, 30 years older than me and if they made a mistake and I pointed it out, you know, that wouldn't be a particularly good thing because you're a young guy and you're pointing out something, you know. Uh, but that I found it so refreshing that the professor would come here and would be candid. Oh, I don't know the answer to that. You know, uh, that's a very good question. I'll look into it, you know. Um, and they were not there to show show you up or there to show how much smarter than they are than you. Uh, but there was a sense of cooperative, uh, we are in this together. And I think that's one of the uh, best things that I found here is here everybody, whether it's the 80 year old person or a 60 year old person, they treat you as an equal. Doesn't matter. That's, that's interesting. Given I think right now in the U.S. there is sort of a cultural divide between uh, relatively older and relatively younger people. I mean, if you look at um, culture, if you look at politics, if you look at uh, economics, um, so for instance, the distribution of wealth, um, so on and so forth, uh, you know, this millennials versus boomers sort of uh, theme, I guess. I, I don't know if it's something that's like explicit as much as just sort of a, a theme in the culture right now, uh, makes it feel like we don't actually have that uh, sort of cooperation or mutual respect um, from uh people of more advanced age down to people who are younger um, or vice versa. Uh, but, you know, you would say that compared to India, it's it's nothing, right? Like that that's sort of how you would describe it? 
right. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, especially when I was growing up, I think now it's changing a lot in India. I think um, at that time, you know, it was still pretty a hierarchical. Uh, your relationship with your elders was very hierarchical. You know, it was not a pally. My my father actually was different. I mean, he was actually quite very different from other men of his generation, and he was more like a friend to me. But uh, I would not say that for most of my peer uh, group at that time. And uh, now I th think it is changing a lot more uh, in India because people are getting sensitized to. Uh, there is obviously greater sensitivity to all these American sitcoms and everything is there and people watch this and Americans are a very aspirational group for middle class Indians. You know, they, they look up to American culture uh, in, in many ways, you know. So, <laughs> you know, the soft power of America actually works very well in India in many ways. Um, so people try to emulate that stuff in, in, in many ways in their own life. Changing gears a bit, it would be great to hear a little bit about the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center where you've spent most of your career. Um, they the, the perspective that the center brings is one very focused on profits, which uh, profits and um, the role of establishments and, and firms um, within the economy is something that uh, economics in general has has spent a lot of time thinking about over the years, all the way back to Adam Smith and even earlier. Uh, but it, it, I, I would describe the Levy Forecasting Center's approach as, as relatively unique even within that within that um, space. Um, so can you give us like a quick rundown of what the profits perspective is? And we'll link to one of the PDF explainers that the Forecasting Institute or Forecasting Center has um, in the show notes. But just as a quick background for people, how would you describe the profits perspective? So the idea is that if you look at um, profits of an individual firm, um, you can see that you know, okay, if I get more revenues than I'm spending, I make profits, right? But if you look at profits in the aggregate, um, for the aggregate economy, what creates corporate profits? And you would, all the notions that you generate from the, um, uh, from the uh, individual perspective, individual firm perspective, like for instance, if I cut my labor costs, my profits are going to go up. Those things actually don't work in the aggregate because somebody's labor cost is somebody else's revenue. Um, so because of the circular flow of funds, which is one of the first things that we learn in econ, actually, um, but we forget it. <laughs> and because of the circular flow of funds, uh, the, in, the, in the aggregate, your fallacy of composition from thinking things like, okay, if, if, if one firm and if the aggregate corporate sector cuts its labor costs, profits are going to go up. Yes, but if the aggregate corporate sector is everybody is cutting their jobs, typically we are in a recession. <laughs> you know, profits don't go up in recession. I mean, there is a reason because if you're cutting um, wages, where do the people who to have the money to spend, which then comes back as revenue? You know, uh, so the profits equation tries to cut through all that and looks at basically take the saving investment identity, and from that you get an identity which is. The corporate profits identity. So corporate profits is just equal. before we before we go into the corporate profits identity. Savings um, has to equal investment in aggregate across the entire economy. That's that's it. S equals I always true. Um, you you have to balance the rest of the world, internal household household and business sectors, government. But once you do all that um, and and you sum all of the savings and all the investment from both sides, it has to equal each other by definition. So that's that's what Sri's referring to when he talks about the the um, savings investment identity. So um, sorry to interrupt, Sri. I just wanted to make sure that that point was clear. No, no, absolutely not. That, that's very good. It's yeah. It's it's a it's also one of the most abused identities in the sense that the people think of savings as a flow of uh, loanable funds, which is not what it is, and. And somehow that is financing investment. Reality is investment. The easy, easier way to think about it is, in, in from my perspective, is investment is a creation of wealth. You know, the creation of assets, whether it is houses, buildings, factories, or intellectual property, whatever you can say, their creation of assets or creation of wealth. And saving is the assignment of the wealth to various sectors in in some way. So. If you think of it that way, it, it's also it's also really important to know, and, and you know, you sort of touched on it with your discussion of loanable funds. It's it's not a question of okay, you know, we can see every dollar of savings somewhere in a macroeconomic account. Um, you know, we can find that bank account, we can find that uh, certificate of deposit, we can find that treasury bond, whatever whatever people are whatever asset is being acquired with savings may not always be explicitly visible in in um, macroeconomic accounts and in sample-based uh, surveys of where assets are in the economy. 
it's more a question of, well, by definition, it must be there somewhere. Like whether we can see it or not, we know it's there because we know that savings must equal investment. Um, and I, I think that's a that's the thing people get caught up on too, is like, oh, well, if a household, if households are saving into something, then that thing must be somewhere. You have to be able to see it somewhere. A lot of the time it's imputed somewhere or it's, it's um, uh, um, not visible to the outside world, which can get very confusing um, when, you know, we think of, you know, oh, everything has to tally up to to, to match the total. We can't always sample well enough to, to get to that total. So I just, I just wanted to make that point too. Sorry, I keep these tangents going. Yeah, no, no, that's a that's an excellent point. I mean, that's, yeah, there is a lot of confusion about these things. So, uh, of course, an identity is true by definition, but identities don't tell you um, uh, the causality, right? But with the profits equation, you know, the, what we try to think about is, is profits are a residual uh, and how can we use it to forecast profits and, and develop some causality. And here is our intuition. I mean, let me give you an intuition. Let's, let's say you are the business sector and I am the uh, household sector. Suppose um, you hire me and pay me $100 and I spend back the $100, you just got back what you, got, uh, what you spent on me. So you don't make a profit there, right? Now, suppose you spend $100 on me, uh, give me $100 in wages, and I spend only $80, now you have a $20 deficit, okay? Um, but now let's take it the other way. You, you, you give me $100, okay? Um, and I now go to the bank and, and, and get a loan and, and build a house for $30, aside from also buying consumer goods for $100. So now your revenues are $130, okay? Um, and now we can bring in capital goods, not just houses. Then capital goods for the business sector is a balance sheet transaction for the business that is putting up the capital goods, but for the business that is actually building and selling the capital goods, it's a revenue and therefore profits. You know, so that's the intuition behind the profit sources is how the creation of wealth, which is investment, is the real source of profits over the long haul. That's how profits are created. It's it's remarkable to me um, in this era where investment in the U.S. economy, like that, like if you look at the net investment rate of uh, government and private business summed together, so just total economy um, investment in fixed assets relative to total output, we are currently still well below what would be considered recessionary levels on that indicator, going back to um, you know the the. Uh, World War II period, so anything post-war, we're, we're at levels that it's rising, but it's it's still what you would consider recessionary. And there's all there's been lots of debate around. Oh well, why are why hasn't corporate profit growth been as strong as in past recessions in percentage terms coming out, as coming out of last past recessions in percentage terms? Why has unemployment been higher than in, coming out of past recessions? Why has productivity growth been really low? Why, uh, you know on down the line, right? There's all these economic right. questions that get tied into the post-crisis period. And to me, like, it's really intuitive. You just look at that chart and it explains like everything. It, it like net investment has been really low. And as a result, a lot of stuff has happened. And, you know, it, it doesn't explain every little detail at month to month, day to day, that kind of thing. But it's just like as an overarching framework, thinking about things in terms of the acquisition of assets, which allow us to be more productive and represent wealth, um, has been lower like and and Absolutely. that that explains it like <laughs> yes yes and that also explains why again going back to the profits equation if you think about if the wealth creation in the economy is is, is weak or broken for some reason uh, but but then what happens what is keeping up corporate profits relatively okay um, is government deficits right so government deficits as you can think of corporate profits as the creation of wealth less the saving that is going to all the other sectors in the economy other than the businesses, right? Other than business. Uh, so corporate profits is nothing but uh, business saving before dividends. So uh, if wealth creation, which is investment, is weak, but some of the sectors are not saving as much or they're dissaving, especially the government, which is running large deficits, you can think of that helping prop up profits. And that's one reason why during this period of time where investment has been weak, government deficits have been very, very high and they've been very critical in holding up the economy, uh, which a lot of people who are on the Austerians, you know, they don't really get what's happening. And the profits perspective illuminates it, why austerity cannot work in this environment where uh, net investment is weak. And if you try to 
uh, cut the government deficit, you're going to now create a recession because corporate profits weaken, then businesses are going to cut back more and you get into a vicious cycle. We should also note, I guess, too, that um, the current account deficit has been relatively high. So that is a part that is another partial explanation for high government deficits i, I mean the the that's correct i mean that's absolutely right yeah we've so, had this discussion over twitter yes uh, yeah so the the four major the, just to back out a, a second here in the first stylized model that sri described he described a business sector and a household sector to those two that you know when you think about macroeconomic sectors we would typically add uh the rest of world which is that its net savings versus investment is the negative of the current account deficit and then the government um saving versus investment is essentially the government deficit um doesn't work that way exactly in the macroeconomic accounts but close enough so if the government is running a big deficit and corporate profits are high then the current account deficit must be large and um we don't really know that much about what households may be doing if households have a positive savings account that or savings rate then then it's likely you'll have a current account deficit too so these these four different variables fit together and some to zero because they are collectively all of the savings and all of the investment in the economy if the government is dissaving with a high deficit that creates savings for the other sectors if the rest of the world is saving a lot with a high current account deficit then that means that other sectors can't save as much because that savings is going to the rest of the world so this sort of framework is one that will be very familiar to people that might um, hear once in a while about uh, modern monetary theory. And I'd love to talk to Sri about that because um, so far the story that he's telling with the profits perspective and uh, macroeconomic balances across different um, sectors and uh, modern monetary theory work together very well. It's, it's, it, they're, the, the two theories are, are basically simpatico. Um, Sri, with that sort of introduction, do you want to talk a little bit about what MMT, modern monetary theory, is and where you may see weaknesses or strengths? Yeah, uh, let me just give a little bit of uh, background here. Hi um, Minsky was at Washington University for a long time. Unfortunately, I was not there at that time. He was there. He had retired and he had joined the Levy Institute. And we used to be part of the Levy Institute long back. Uh, my, my partner uh, and colleague, uh, David Levy, his uncle actually endowed the Institute, but we are no longer involved with the Institute. Um, and David, at the time when he was helping run and run the Institute, used to have long conversations with, in, uh, with Minsky, and a lot of his analysis has been influenced by Minsky to some extent, especially thinking about balance sheets and the private sector balance sheets and things like that. But... Um, you know, and, and Minsky obviously, you know, is uh, one of the mentors of the current generation of uh, MMT, especially Randy Ray was, was his last graduate student at WashU. Um, and, uh, you know, Minsky obviously used the uh, different version of the profits equation where instead of looking at profits, you would look at cash flow. Um, and, um, and so he had a lot of sympathetical with our, our kind of approach in, 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 in that sense. So the MMT is a very policy-oriented thing, and we don't take a very strong stance on policy. Um, and, and apart from that, you know, in a broad sense, what MMT says is, look, look at these, the profits equation or the sectoral balances. They like to look at it in sectoral balances. When the government is running a deficit, by definition, all the other sectors it is are running uh, a surplus or all these other sectors put together are running a surplus. So when the government is running a deficit, it is actually printing out IOUs called government bonds or treasury bills or whatever it is. And we are all accumulating those uh, IOUs. Generally speaking, all of us consider treasury bonds and bills to be safe assets. So we are building more and more safe assets in our portfolio, um, which is in a sense good. Um, the conventional economics says all that that you're building up you're going to pay in the future as taxes, and therefore it really is not wealth. Um, that's how, uh, the, that's a big difference between MMT and conventional economics, and where I think we would be closer to MMT in that regard, is most people, you never think when you hold treasury bonds, you don't think all that is going to go away in, in, in taxes in the future. That's not how most people think. Those people don't have a long-time horizon. The, the term that people may be familiar here with here is Ricardian equivalence, right? Um, right? If you ever heard the term Ricardian equivalence, that's the conventional economic assumption um, that, that government deficits now mean higher taxes later to balance the budget and bring down debt. Um, so that's that's what Sri's referring to there. Sorry, Sri, I didn't mean to drop, but just wanted to throw that in there. No, no, that's no, that's a good, that, that, that was a good one. I didn't, I was not sure whether I should throw the term regarding equivalence, but um, it was, uh, yeah. So I think uh, that is one of the key differences between 
conventional economics and MMT and 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 our view too uh, is that is government deficits net wealth for the rest of the economy? Are they do they view it as net wealth? And we would say yes. And the other important thing is government deficits play a stabilizing rule role in the economy because when the economy is going down, the only sector capable of running deficits, when the economy is going down, nobody can borrow, nobody can run deficits because it's hard to obtain credit. And generally speaking, confidence is short and you don't want to be borrowing. So only sector that can actually uh, run deficits is the government. And so it plays a stabilizing role in a purely, of course, in a purely macro stabilization sense, but on a, from a financial balance sheet perspective, by pumping more safe assets into the uh, into the economy, you are helping stabilize the uh, risky asset part of your portfolio. So it has a stabilizing role uh, from a balance sheet perspective as well as from a purely economic perspective. Um, and that's where um, uh, we have a lot of commonality with MMT. Now, MMT now goes and takes it one step further and says that, look, here is how you should run your economy, uh, which is you use fiscal policy as a primary stabilization tool, um, running deficits as much as you can uh, until you reach full employment and until inflation starts to pick up. And then you moderate your deficits. And you run monetary policy to keep the debt stable in relation to GDP. You know, so it, which inverts the complete logic of the current policy. The current policy regime is uh, is monetary policy is used for macro stabilization, and fiscal policy is to ensure the stabilization debt sta debt stability. So uh, your fiscal policy should be run based based on that government debt to GDP should be stable. Right now, the Fed says, okay, we are going to use the overnight interest rate and the size of the Fed balance sheet to uh, tighten when we think inflation is going to pick up or loosen when we think inflation is going to um, decline. Uh, you know, they have a dual mandate as well. So, you know, when I say inflation pickup or inflation decline, I'm also referring to um, the utilization of um, human capital in the labor markets and um, the growth of the economy's output in real terms. Um, we assume all those are correlated. Um, fiscal policy is there to say, okay, well, we don't want debt to GDP to get too high, essentially. We, we, we want relatively stable debt to GDP. We can run deficits, but they can't be very large. And it doesn't really matter what's going on in the rest of the economy. The Fed's going to handle that. That's the current regime that, that sort of the way we, we organize the economy at the policy level. What MMT would argue is we've got that backwards. So instead of caring about what debt to GDP is, the federal government deficit should be designed to attack unemployment or uh, raise inflation, or when inflation is high and unemployment is low, uh, to reduce the rate of inflation by restricting fiscal policy. The Fed's job should be to take that as a given, whatever the fiscal policy is, and change interest rates um, to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio uh, based on the growth of nominal gross domestic product and uh, the growth of the deficit as well. So complete inversion as Sri just described. Yeah, no, that is a very, very good explanation. No, 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 no excellent explanation. Uh, and, you know, the, under some dynamics, you can show that both regimes are more or less the same. But when the debt is actually high, the current regime becomes destab could potentially become destabilizing. Uh, whereas why is that? the MMT regime. So what happens is the debt gets high enough, and if you start raising interest rates, right, and the interest rate is higher than the um, than the nominal GDP growth, then you get into a spiral where the debt keeps increasing and uh, debt to GDP keeps increasing because interest because interest costs keep rising and so on and so forth. That is. So the key operating, uh, the organizing principle here is is interest rate higher than nominal GDP growth. Uh, and generally speaking, if you look at Japan and US, you know we've had these very large deficits, but yet we haven't had spiraling problems. That's because interest rate has been less than the, the debt, uh, less than the nominal GDP growth. Uh, to the extent it is not, then you get rising debt to GDP, and and that's where the instability comes from. So when you hike interest rates. Uh, to try and um, attack inflation, let's say, okay, then what you are actually doing is you're weakening the economy, but 
you're also destabilizing the uh, uh, the debt to GDP picture. You know that's that's the reason why uh, the the current regime is not preferable, especially when debt is high. So then, Sri, how does the profits perspective think about inflation? We've we've talked a little bit about how MMT thinks about it. MMT thinks about it as okay, inflation is our constraint. We're going to run budget deficits that are large to the point unemployment comes down to reach full employment, and then we're going to continue to run large deficits until inflation is starting to pick up or take off. And then when inflation takes off, we'll pull back from the fiscal cliff um, or fiscal uh, accelerator, and that way inflation won't get out of control. Um, So very similar to how people think about the Federal Reserve today with interest rates, but instead we're talking about fiscal policy. Um, So how does the uh, profits perspective think about the concept of inflation in the context of profits being the driving force and aggregate profits being the driving force in economic activity? Yeah, so I think the the inflation is a very complex, from our perspective, is a very complex phenomenon. It cannot be boiled down to one thing like the Nairu uh, or, um, or or any single indicator. Uh, what what you have is, and it's very context dependent, right? For instance, in the 70s, we we had pretty high un, uh, unemployment, but that didn't prevent inflation from from being high. So uh, it is context dependent to the extent that there is institutional arrangements matter, like there was so much institutionalization of inflation in the 70s with colas and everything. That's uh, a cost, cost of and, living adjustments uh, for people also, that aren't familiar. Cost of living adjustments, yeah. And you also have uh, the labor market institutions such as bargaining power and unions and how much of uh, uh, how much do older workers or um, uh, workers in the already with jobs have relative to people who are outside looking in. Uh, so all those factors um, come into play. For instance, I was just looking at the 70s. You know, if you look at people in their mid-career, like 35 to 44 or 45 to 54 year old, their real wages actually went up during the 70s. But the real wages of the new entrants, you know, the young people, 25 to 34, actually went down. Um, but because there was such a big influx of new workers, the median wage, real wage actually went down. But if you look at the older workers, that was not true at all, which means they, they had a lot of bargaining power. Uh, whereas if you look at the current environment, median wages of, of older workers have actually been stagnant or going down. I mean, you know, the last couple of years, it has, it has improved. Um, so uh, I think so a lot of... That, that's just to, just to ask a question. That's interesting because I've heard you in the past critique the... Um, approach of uh, looking at labor bargaining power, um, you know, essentially uh, back to its roots, Marxist economics around, um, you know, unionization or share of output, um, share of income um, that labor takes in. I've, I've seen you critique that as a source of um, profits uh, explanation, but from an inflation perspective, you think it is it is there is value in terms of looking at labor bargaining power um, in explaining the the rate of inflation or or the context for the rate of inflation. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, in terms of that's a very good point. I mean, the in terms of uh, the Marxist perspective in the wage share thing, I think a lot of people confuse. Again, this goes back to the the same thing: wage share. If wage share is going up, profit share is going down. But that's by just an identity. That's by definition. You know, if one share is going up, other share is going down. That's there is that all you're making is an identity statement there. But people go from there to make the other fallacious um, argument that if wage share is going up, aggregate profits must be going down, not profit share. Profits must be going down. That's not the case. Most of the time, actually, when wages are going up really fast. It's where the economy is expanding and profits are also going up fast. You go go look at the 50s, 60s, 70s. This has not held true in the last couple of decades, you know, maybe especially this decade. But generally speaking, when wages are going up fast, it's the economy is growing robustly. And that's when profits are also growing robustly. Uh, in other words, the pie can be getting bigger faster than an yes, individual exactly, slice exactly. is shrinking or, or um, exactly. rising. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So t- turning back to the inflation picture, so uh, one of the factors in the inflation is, of course, how tight the labor market is, but it is only one of the factors we have to keep in mind that uh, even that's why if you see the current environment where even though the labor market is clearly becoming tighter, uh, there's still been uh, some resistance to wage inflation is because 
given uh, given the the disaster myopia what mark dow calls a disaster myopia businesses still remain very reluctant to try um, give wage hikes and try to resist it as much as possible um, and uh, and 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 employees too you know remain a little bit circumspect about their prospects and not as uh, confident but the broader zeitgeist is we don't have the same kind of unionized bargaining that's that's possible uh, that drives up wages to some extent so uh, the dynamics are very different from every era to era which is why any kind of modeling with the nairu or unemployment rate you, you it, because of the shifts and the regime changes you're not going to get stable parameters over various decades just for context um the percent of uh non-farm uh or employed wage and salary workers um that are in unions uh among all 16 and over workers in 2017 uh, was uh or percent represented was 11.9%. Interestingly, looking at younger workers so 16 to 24 it's 5.4 percent older workers uh, 55 to 64 years it's 14.9 percent so that sort of gets back to your observation about the different differing levels of bargaining power by age um, in the 1970s that's also true today too young people yeah. <laughs> um, not only have lower bargaining power on purely um, an economic basis but the institutions in place to shift labor bargaining power one way or the other um, favor older workers. Fifteen uh, percent um, of older workers are represented by unions versus less than six percent for sixteen to twenty-four-year-old workers, which is um, something I hadn't actually really ever thought about before this conversation. But is is a really interesting observation about the relative bargaining power of different groups within the economy and different groups that are that experience really different wage growth, right? right? Because when you're older, you're going to experience slower wage growth. It's a life cycle effect. When you're younger, you experience much faster wage growth. So um, really that that kicks uh, to have much lower unionization among younger workers really kicks down wage growth. Right. Absolutely. Yes. What are some other institutional differences between the 1970s and now? So we, we talked about uh, cost of living adjustments that, you know, so basically contracts having built in uh, step ups as inflation rises, so do wages. And that sort of creates a positive feedback loop. Um, unionization was another example. Uh, are there any other major differences between the uh, 1970s or even the 1960s and now um, versus vis-a-vis uh, -vis the institutions that provide a context to higher or lower inflation? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the global context, this is not so much institution, but the global economic context was also very different, right? I mean, the uh, the emerging economies were simply not technologically at a stage where they were competitors in 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 the global uh, manufactured goods sector. Um, so, so you mainly had the competition between the developed economies, and most of the developed economies had very tight labor markets and incredibly tight. Uh, no slack in capacity. You know, I think Germany had below 3%, Japan had like one and a half or 2% unemployment. You know, Japan is always low, but even Germany, which even Europe, the unemployment rates were very, very low. So uh, so, so internationally, the, the global economy was pretty drum tight, which is not the case today. Uh, that's one, that's not an institutional context. That's one of the things. Uh, but the other important thing is, there is a nice book called End of Loyalty, um, I, I forget his name, Rick. Um, I, I, I can't recall the name right now, but you can, you can Google it, and I've actually tw tweeted about it. Um, he talks about the institutional arrangement that was there in companies, um, that there was a sense, which was started really by Eastman Kodak in the 1930s, that you share your wealth with your employees. You know, he started this company, employee dividend, you know, um, and... Uh, so there was a compact, social compact between the employer and the employee, um, especially among the large corporations in the U.S. Uh, that had been built up since the 1930s and, and had, had gathered steam during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Now, in, so, which gave a sense of uh, uh, the employees being more important than or being an as important stakeholder in as shareholders, which is clearly has changed in the last 30 years. Uh, that is The End of Loyalty by uh, Rick Wartsman. That's a really interesting book, um, really interesting looking book. I, I had never heard of that before today. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting to discuss is that that arc of loyalty that you describe and sort of the the sharing of, of profits with employees and a collective sort of approach to business that 
follows a number of other indicators that sort of rise and follow that from the 1930s to the 1970s where it peaked and then sort of has gone completely the other way since. Um, that follows a, a bunch of other um, really interesting um, trends that that have played out at the same time. Robert D. Putman, uh, who is a professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, has this really amazing chart um, and this really great presentation. We'll link to the presentation in the show notes where he talks about all of this different stuff related to what you just described, Sri. So whether it's uh, union membership, family formation, association membership, uh, purchasing power of the minimum wage, um, the progressivity of tax rates, uh, wealth inequality, there's this, this litany of totally unrelated or seemingly unrelated variables that sort of go straight up into the 1960s and early 70s and then go trend steadily down since. And, you know, if you draw up a big chart of inflation, it looks really similar to that, right? Like inflation goes up from the 1930s when we had massive deflation, didn't really go crazy or anything, but sort of steadily trended higher until the 1970s, peaked, broke, and we're now back in a trough again. Um, so the, the, I, I really love your idea that inflation is not just a set of variables in an equation that can be you know, used equally well at different time periods, but is highly context dependent on the arrangement of society. Um, looking forward, you, you had mentioned the, the the sort of very high capacity growth of emerging markets from the 1980s through now, 1970s, 1980s through now, as one different institutional variable or different backdrop variable for inflation. How do you think about that going forward the next 30 years? I, I, I just look at China, which where demographics have peaked, or um, you know India, where uh, certain institutional headwinds seem to have sort of put a cap on how fast the manufacturing sector can grow. And I wonder where the next China comes from because I don't I don't see it out there anywhere. I don't I don't see the next giant slug of capacity for the global economy. Do you agree with that? Disagree with that? Um, do you have a different perspective? No, I think I think your your point is probably right. I mean, I I haven't thought along those time, terms, but but in some terms of demographics, clearly, uh, you know, uh, although the demographic arguments for inflation have generally not worked out very well, which makes me a little bit hesitant. But uh, you're, you're right. I mean, I think our perspective, one of the things we think is manufacturing is going to go the way of agriculture, right? I mean, already in the U.S., I think the manufacturing share of employment is below 8%. Uh, and um, agriculture is like 2.5%. So you're just going to automate uh, so much more of it. And in China, they're already doing it, even in China. So uh, maybe we will overcome in the traded goods, especially in manufacturing, uh, the inflationary aspect of it may be overcome by by more and more automation, um, which is easier to do in manufacturing than to think about you know a bunch of robots running around uh, doing uh, being barbers or uh, massage therapists and things like that. Those are harder to do, right? Um, whereas uh, automation in manufacturing has been going on forever for a long time, and so I think in the tradable goods sector that probably will dominate the demographic effects is my sense. I may be wrong on that. Um, but in the non-tradable goods sector, you are likely to see more uh, inflation as the demographic duster invert in, in most of the countries, including China. Um, and, and you're right about India. You know, in India, the, the problem is people keep talking about the demographic dividend, but the, the real problem is you don't have a skilled workforce, you know, and um, you don't have enough the industrial training institutes where people can get trained as welders, you know, fitters and all that stuff, machinists and, and all that. So if you actually go and try to set up a manufacturing unit in many places, you won't have enough workers to get. That is one. The second, of course, there's all kinds of rigidities in the labor market that, that prevent you from uh, firing people, which means obviously you're not going to hire people. You're not going to put up the factory. And... Um, and so it is, it's a big challenge, and infrastructure is still pretty bad, which adds to the costs. Uh, and, and to be able to replicate China's story, you have to have that overall vision of, of which most emerging markets simply do not have, uh, being able to add the capacity. You are absolutely right on that. There is nothing like China on the horizon that's going to depress a uh, global uh, tradable goods sector. That the way China did, for sure, yes. But I think the automation within the developed world and in China 
uh, will probably mitigate some of the uh, some of those those aspects. So in the trade in the in the goods sector, I still think that you won't get much inflation. Um, whereas in the services sector, of course, you know the the labor component is still so huge that it's going to be very hard to. Uh, overcome the demographic headwinds. Okay, well, we typically like to end our conversations with a segment called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap. Um, it's not uh, asking you for investing advice. It's more just your take on uh, where the world stands right now. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that there's a lot of aspirational um, enthusiasm from the Indian middle class around um, the the American way of doing things, uh, and that that's a great example of American soft power. I would tend to agree that's a that's a very good example. But American soft power is something that uh, seems to have been a little bit challenged recently, and there's a number of different ways you can phrase you can. You know, look for examples of this. Um, do you think American soft power is trading rich or trading cheap? American soft power, no, it is trading cheap. I, I, my view is Anglo-Saxons as a, as, a, as a whole, I mean, although many would contest whether the U.S. is an Anglo-Saxon uh, economy anymore, I would say yes, it is. And we should, even though I'm not an Anglo-Saxon per se by ethnicity, uh, I see myself as uh, an inheritor of that legacy. And uh, one of the great things about Anglo-Saxons is that they do their dirty linen in public, which tends to make things look really unseemly. Uh, but it also, <laughs> also actually clears it out. And so from time to time, I mean, if you look through our history, you know, this is this kind of stuff always happens. And even in UK, right? I mean, so... Um, stuff happens, but the, the underlying institutions are resilient. And you could say that some damage is being done. And, you know, people said that same with when Nixon was there. And, you know, I mean, these kind of, I, I think people underestimate the resiliency of these institutions and the, the power of uh, uh, the, the ideas and, and how, um, how it fosters the long arc of history uh, towards more personal freedom and greater self-fulfillment, you know, uh, self-actualization um, uh, in in Anglo-Saxon societies and which others are trying to emulate in in some ways, you know, I I I, I'm, I think it's just we are going through a low ebb, and I I don't think it'll last long. Do you, just as a tangent to that, do you think that's true of the UK too? I mean, I would assume yes. I but... think so. Yes, yes. Oh, you know, I mean, look, I have. You know, from time to time, I've tweeted against Winston Churchill and the lionization of him because, you know, from an Indian perspective, you know, he was responsible in one way or the other for the deaths of millions of people. At the heart of it, though, I'm still a very, uh, I, 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 I can detach myself from that and see the Anglo-Saxon institutions as something to what um, emulate and, and the British uh, over uh, time. I mean, they again are going through a very low ebb, unfortunately, but they will come out of it. You know, this, this, this kind of uh, things, things happen. And... Uh, because uh, the the institutions call for more of uh, uh, con instead of suppressing the conflict, you bring the conflict out. It actually leads to a resolution where ultimately, you know, even if it is very vicious sometimes, like our civil war, unfortunately, but the conflict does get resolved, you know, and in one form or the other. And I think that's that's good for. Uh, the long-term resilience. I mean, the Canadians do it the best way. The Canadians and the, to a lesser extent, the Australians among the Anglo-Saxons and, and the New Zealander, but the Kiwis, of course, do it do it the very calm way. Uh, I wish the the American and the uh, British brethrens brethrens could learn from the Canadians and the and the and the uh, New Zealanders. But you know, each to each his own. I mean, but broadly speaking, these are uh, societies where uh, you do the, the conflict. You know. Generally speaking, if you want to suppress conflict in a Japanese way, you know, you, you present a picture of harmony, right? I mean, of course, I'm a great admirer of Japan. It works for Japan, but I don't think that's a model that works for every other society. Whereas I think the Anglo-Saxon model is more replicable uh, in some way. Do you think, and usually we don't spend as long on each of these individual subjects, but this is a really, really interesting pick your brain on this. Do you think that that Anglo-Saxon model is the one that uh, Europe should have followed in creating the EU and the various uh, European, pan-European institutions, for instance, the ECB or the Eurozone? Or do you think that um, their model is sustainable given the societal context? Just like you said, Japan can't be replicated everywhere. Maybe the Anglo-Saxon model is less portable than we'd like to think, too. 
Yeah, I, I, I used to be more skeptical of the Anglo-Saxon model being portable, and I'm sometimes skeptical too, but I do think that's the only one really compatible with, with capitalism and individual freedom in, in the long run. That said, uh, the European, current European model uh, is not sustainable because sooner or later, again, we'll have another crisis sometime or other. There will always be a recession, I mean, unless we have somehow conquered the business cycle. Uh, the underlying fissures will come back again because without a fiscal union of some sort, uh, you're going to come back to the same issues that that happen when you bail out the bank. Who's are the so individual sovereigns going to bail out the banks, or is it going to be um, collective? And uh, and you know we we solved that problem 200 years ago with our with the when we went from Articles of Confederation to the uh, to the Constitution. And unless Europe Europeans have managed to paper over that through ECB, and maybe they will be able to do it again. But these fissures will come back again, and these questions will come back again. And to the extent that they don't, uh, it is better to solve it in a in a formal way than to have ECB step in every time and you know increase its powers in willy nilly and and somehow manage to solve the crisis. Uh, it would be more resilient from a longer term perspective to come up with a set of institutional arrangements that are more resilient. They don't have to necessarily copy what we have done with our constitution, but get closer to that kind of a fiscal union um, which formalizes those arrangements uh, is, is, is very essential uh, if, they, if they are going to uh, survive. And, I mean, everything has to be fitted to the own context for sure. I mean, you can't copy the exact same things. Uh, but the broad principles... Um, I think the European Union is not based on uh, the, the architecture, financial architecture is not based on sound underlying principles. Turning to um, another big topic, do you think uh, do you think precious metals as money are trading rich or trading cheap? And I, I say that because we've seen, I think in the last uh, little while, the first um, real challenger to uh, gold or silver as a, you know, money of last resort um, in the introduction of digital currencies. Now, I mean, my view would tend to be that they're inferior forms of money regardless, both of them equally inferior for similar reasons. However, I mean, I, I do think there will always be a contingent that thinks that the labor theory of value is is ultimately where things have to go and therefore uh, gold and uh, assets like cryptocurrencies will always have a place as a store of value. So do you think that that's true or do you think that um, do you think that that there is a shift away from from precious metals and towards cryptocurrencies or one that's pending or do you think the two can exist as as their own little universes oh cryptocurrencies and, and gold i mean to some extent the cryptos are uh, certainly i mean some of the crypto advocates do tell you that you know that it is a substitute for gold especially i was listening to uh, the winkle was uh, twins and then they do make that uh, allusion but for a lot of the uh, old time gold uh, uh, enthusiasts uh, you know the part of the whole thing is they clearly detest this uh, this this uh, virtual world you know uh, to them the physicality of gold you know to be able to touch it and to have it you know is, is a very important thing so you're never going to be peel away those people away from from gold um, you know in a long term sense I do think that all these alternate forms whether it is gold or silver or uh, or crypto uh, they will they are I, I think the long arc of history is against them yes as being alternative stores of value or currencies and and the reason being uh, I made this point you know Part of the legitimacy for gold and silver came from the fact that the governments gave them legitimacy. By, by accepting a gold standard, the government actually legitimizes gold, whereas the gold standards invert this logic and think that gold legitimizes governments. No, governments are, we have dropped the gold standards and governments are doing fine. So it's not, and not that governments uh, got legitimacy from gold, but gold got its legitimacy from, from the governments. And the best example of that is gold and silver. If you go back before the 19th century, most countries used to be in some form of bimetallic standards. And for 5,000 years, the gold-silver ratio was about 16 to 1. Um, but starting in the 19th century, the European countries, one by one, 
dropped out of the silver standard, became a pure gold standard, and the U.S. was one of the last to drop out in 1870s. We dropped out and we became effectively pure gold, although we never said it effectively in that that those words. Um, so if you look at silver since then, it dropped below the 16 to one. Rather, I mean, the gold gold silver became much higher than 16 to one, and it never came back. It never ever came back. So the government delegitimizing silver meant that silver was no longer ever captured the glory uh, ever again. But but you could see the Hunt brothers, their whole argument was that silver gold has been 16 to 1 through ages. It should come back to 16 through 16 to 1. And that's why they started cornering the silver market. But when it settles down naturally, and you can see it never even comes close to 16 to 1 again. Um, so to me, uh, the, the legitimacy afforded to any currency by the taxing power of the government and uh, is is what leads, what gives it value. Um, of course, value can exist outside of that framework. Like gold still has some value because people like it for jewelry and Indians love gold. They've loved gold for 5,000 years. Um, so there'll always be some value. Uh, but the uh, speculative value that comes from an asset being a currency in a global sense, uh, I don't think these things um, will will ever, I mean, the, the halcyon days are behind. And with that, we will wrap things up. Srinivas Tiruvarantai, thank you very much for joining us today on BespokeCast. It was great to hear your thoughts, and uh, we'll hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, George. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.